God has given us wonderful and meaningful festivals and holy days. And when we observe them, we focus on the meaning of these days and these festivals. Contrast that with the way that the world celebrates its holidays. Christmas with all the trees and the hustle and bustle of shopping and everything that goes along with it. We could also think about Easter and ornate bonnets or hats, rabbits, chocolate rabbits, Easter eggs, all that sort of thing. That seems to be the focus of the world holidays. That's to say nothing of Valentine's Day and Halloween. But with God's festivals, we focus on the meaning of the days each day. And we say each day. You know, God gives us hints in his word and sometimes very direct statements as to the meaning of a particular festival or holy day. 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, verse 7, tells us that Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. So there's no doubt as to what the Passover signifies and means for us. The very next verse tells us that the Feast of Unleavened Bread involves partaking of unleavened bread, which is sincerity and truth, and at the same time putting out the leavened bread of, uh, of uh, malice and wickedness. And so we begin to see the meaning of that day through those statements. And Paul tells the Gentile Corinthians, therefore let us keep this feast, not with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The day of Pentecost is a very important day. And on that day, we see that God poured out his Holy Spirit on the New Testament church. And we contrast with that with the Old Testament, and we see that uh, this was a time when God was giving us his spirit so that he could write his laws in our hearts and on our minds as opposed to on stone. And so we see the connection there between the old covenant and the new covenant. In the book of Zechariah, the 14th chapter, the, uh, the millennium opens up with a summons for mankind to send up representatives from all nations to observe the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, we've come to this Feast of Tabernacles at this time. We're coming to the seventh day, the last day of this feast that pictures the millennium. And that's why in Zechariah 14, when he shows us about the, uh, the people coming up to keep the feast, or he commands, summons people to come up and keep the feast, that's why that festival is associated with the millennium, the beginning of Christ's rule. But on this seventh day of unleavened bread, we have to ask ourselves the question, why did God give us seven days of, of uh, not of unleavened bread, but this seventh day of the Feast of Tabernacles? Why did God give us seven days for the Feast of Tabernacles? We know that the days of unleavened bread pictured that time coming out of Egypt, and it took them seven days to do so. So why during the Feast of Tabernacles do we have a full seven days? Uh, let me assure you, I'm not going to be able to give you the full answer to that today, but I can give you a little bit of information as to this seventh day, because it's wonderful that God has actually given us a sermon that was given on this seventh day, and it allows us to have a look into this seventh day of the Feast of Tabernacles and a very important lesson for us. So today, I have good news for you, and that is that there is a sermon that was given on this day, and we're going to look at that sermon, and we're going to see what the background of it was, and see what the lesson might be for you and for me.
The post-exilic period, the time when the Jews came back from captivity, uh, begins uh, around the, the year 539-538. It begins with the pronouncement by Cyrus, and we can read of that in the book of Ezra, where the Jews are in Babylon in captivity, and some estimates are that there were as many as two million Jews in Babylon. It's interesting that the book of Second Corinthians ends with the statement in the very last verse of Second Corinthians 36, begin, ends with what is the beginning of the book of Ezra. So Ezra 1, verse 1 says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying... And this is where we see the, the opening words or the, the final words of Second Chronicles. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kings of the earth the eternal God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you of all his people? May his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judea, and build the house of the eternal God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. Now, uh, of the two million people, only a small fraction, a few tens of thousands of people, actually went back to Jerusalem to build the temple. But one of the lessons that we learn here that when we look at this particular passage is that Cyrus recognized that in an effort like this, it was a team effort that involved far more people. And so verse 4 says, whoever is left in any place where he dwelt, dwells, in other words, those who stayed behind, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold, with goods, livestock, besides the free will offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. So even the people who stayed behind were to give them gold and silver and perhaps animals to take up for sacrifice and what have you, to give them donations, offerings, to go back to Jerusalem with them so that they could build the temple in Jerusalem. And so we see that the whole nation of Judah was involved in this way. They had the opportunity to be a part of building the temple, even those who did not actually go back. In the fourth chapter of Ezra, after listing the individuals who went there, uh, actually the third chapter, uh, verse 8, Ezra 3, verse 8, it says, In the second month of the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Josedek, and the rest of their brethren, the priests and Levites, and all those who had come out of the captivity to Jerusalem, began work and appointed the Levites from 20 years old and above to oversee the work of the house of the eternal. So they began the work on that particular time, at that time, the second month of the second year. And then down in uh, verse 5, I'm sorry, verse uh, uh, 10, it says, When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, or the eternal, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the eternal according to the ordinance of David, king of Israel. So they laid the foundation, and then they rejoiced at that time. They celebrated because they had made a good beginning. They had laid the foundation. But in the fourth chapter, 
we find that because they had laid the foundation, because they had celebrated, that this came to the observation of the people of the land, the people who eventually became known as the Samaritans in the time of Jesus. These were the ones who had been in Samaria, had come down a bit. Remember, they had uh, been brought from Babylon and other places, brought a false religion. And yet they had a priest, a Levite, that was brought back to help them learn the, the, the God of the land, as it were. And so it was an amalgamation of truth and error, mostly error, but it was a little bit of truth as well. And so they saw themselves in many respects as the descendants, the ones who should be there, of the, the God of that land. And so they wanted to help out with the building of the temple. But in verse 3, Zerubbabel and Joshua and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses of Israel said to them, You may do nothing with us to build a house for our God, but we alone will build the eternal God of Israel as King Cyrus the king of Persia has commanded us. So this was certainly a rebuff to the people, and yet they realized that if they allowed these individuals to help in the building of the temple, and they were far more numerous, they, they would just simply swallow up the Jews. It would become their temple, and the Jews would have to be fighting for their own share of it, so to speak. They recognized that this was not a good idea. And so they turned them down. And the end result was, in verse 4, the people of the land tried to discourage the people of Judah. They troubled them in building and hired counselors. Translate, attorneys, lawyers. Against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So for a period of about 15 years perhaps 16 years, uh, we have the, the cessation of the building of the temple. The Jews allowed themselves to be discouraged. They allowed themselves to stop building the temple. And it didn't start again until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now, verses 6 through verse 23 are, in a sense, an uh, incense, in, inset chapters, not innocence, they are inset chapters. Uh, what they do is they go forward to fur, uh, future persecutions that came against the Jews. And so it, it tells there was this time of persecution. It said, oh, yeah, in the future there was this one, and then there was also this other one. So the context, if we read it in its, its historical uh, account uh, chronologically, we go from verse 5 down to verse 24, where it says, Thus the work of the house of God which is at Jerusalem ceased, and it was discontinued until the second year of the reign of Darius king of Persia. So something happened in the reign of Darius, the second year. This is 520 B.C. Uh, something happened that caused them to begin building once again. We find out what that was in chapter 5, verse 1. Then the prophet Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Idu, prophets, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, who is over them. Now, here we come into the, the situation of Haggai and Zechariah. And a lot of people, a lot of even our members, don't realize that the books of Haggai and Zechariah fit right here in the chronology of things. This is about 520. B.C., 
it was about 16, 17 years after the Jews had come there, probably about 16 years after the Jews had returned, at least a portion of the Jews, a small portion. And the work of building the temple, the very purpose for which they had come back there, had ceased. And now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah stand up and they cause the people to build. So let's go to the book of Haggai toward the end of the minor prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and then Malachi, so the third to the last book or letter or book of the Old Testament. And we'll go to Haggai, the first chapter, and verse 1. It says, In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Eternal came to Haggai the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the high priest. So it is the sixth month, the first day of the month, the second year of Darius. So this is exactly where we left off in the book of Ezra, the um, uh, fifth chapter, verse 1. And here is the message, says, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says the time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. So this was their attitude. They had come to the place where, because of discouragement, they said, well, it's not time to build the church. Uh, the, not the church, but the, the temple. Um, for whatever reason, mostly just discouragement. But also there was human nature that came into play here, as we shall see. But they thought, well, maybe for the future to build it, but not now. Now is not the time. So the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses, your fine paneled houses, and this temple to lie in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Eternal of hosts, consider your ways. Let's stop and reason. Let's think about what's happening. You know, sometimes we get so caught up in the things that we do that we don't stand back and meditate a little bit and think about what is happening around us. And God, through Haggai, wanted the people to stop and to do some analysis of how things were going for them. He says, Is it time for you to dwell in your paneled house in this temple lie in ruin? So consider your ways. Verse 6, You have sown much. They'd gone out, they had put forth effort, but bring in little. You eat and do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put it into a bag with holes. You can imagine trying to fill up a bag with money, but it's got holes and it goes right out the bottom. Maybe not all of it, but a good share of it is lost that way. Thus says the Eternal of Hosts, consider your ways. Think about it. Consider what you're doing and what the end results of your actions are. What are the fruits of your labor? Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple, that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Eternal. Verse 9, you look for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Eternal of hosts? The reason, because of my house that is in ruins, well, every one of you runs to his own house. So my house is in ruins. 
But you go and you take care of number one, as we sometimes call it. Now, that's kind of a misnomer because really number one, numero uno, is God. But in this world, number one is, is right here. It's a self. And they were taking care of themselves, but they weren't doing the work that they had been sent back there to do. And that work was commissioned by God because God prophesied that... Uh, in 70 years from the time that they finally went into captivity, the final part of their, actually the beginning of their captivity, till the coming out, uh, there would be 70 years it would pass. Jeremiah prophesied that. And uh, this was stirred up by God to stir up the heart of Cyrus to send them back for this purpose. So that was the purpose that they had been sent there. And they weren't doing that work. So verse 10 says, Therefore the heavens above you withhold the dew, and the earth withholds its fruit. For I called for a drought. God called for a drought on the land and the mountains, on the grain and the new wine and the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. So Zerubbabel, verse 12, and Joshua, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the eternal their God. So they obeyed. They listened to to Haggai and also Zechariah, although we're going to specifically look at Haggai's account here. But they listened to these prophets, the words of Haggai the prophet, as the eternal God had sent him. So God had sent him, and the people feared the presence of the eternal. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke the Lord's message to the people, saying, I am with you, says the eternal. Notice again, it emphasizes that Haggai was merely the messenger of God. This was not something he thought up, but this was something that was given to him by the eternal God. And so he stirred up the people as God had told him. Verse 14, so the eternal stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel and of Joshua and all the remnant of the people, and they came and they worked on the house of the eternal of hosts, their God. Now, when did they begin this work? They'd laid the foundation, and then through 15 years of decay, whatever had occurred there, uh, perhaps some of the stones have been knocked down, people playing on them, who knows what, uh, but it was lying in ruins. It was certainly in the foundation. If it was in place, nothing else was. And so... Uh, he stirred them up to work, and verse 15, it was the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. Now, the 24th day puts it within a week of the Feast of Trumpets. And we know that when the Feast of Trumpets comes, then it's a very short time when we have the Day of Atonement, and then we have the Feast of Tabernacles. So they began to get themselves together to work on the 24th day of the sixth month, about a week before the uh, fall festival season. And then the second chapter, verse 1, says, In the seventh month, on the 21st of the month, the word of the eternal came by Haggai the prophet. Now, what day is the 21st day of the seventh month? Well, remember the first day of the seventh month is the Feast of Trumpets. The tenth day was a day that we fasted for the Day of Atonement. 
The 15th day of the seventh month, you can read this in Leviticus 23, the 15th day of the seventh month begins the Feast of Tabernacles. So we have the 15th, the 16th, the 17th, the 18th, the 19th, the 20th, and the 21st. Seven days. This is the seventh day of the Feast of Tabernacles. That's this day that we are celebrating today. So here we have a message. And notice it says the seventh month, the 21st day of the month, the word of the eternal came by Haggai the prophet saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and also Joshua, the high priest, and the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, uh, is this not in your eyes as nothing? Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel. Notice, says the Eternal, or the Lord. So this is God's message through Haggai on this very day, this seventh day, this last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. Because remember, tomorrow begins a totally new feast festival, which is the uh, last great day. And it has a different meaning. So here we are, figuratively, at the very end of the millennium, because the Feast of Tabernacles pictures the millennium. And the message that he is, is bringing to them, notice in verse 4, Be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Eternal, and be strong, Joshua. And be strong, all you people of the land, says the Eternal, and work. For I am with you, says the Eternal of hosts. I am with you, and I want you to work. I command you to work. Now, we have to stop and maybe consider why this message on this day. Well, you know, there are several possible reasons. One is that they started the work on the 24th day of the sixth month. And then you had the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and seven days of the Feast of Tabernacles. There'd be one more day. And then they would go back to their homes. And perhaps God did not want them to forget at that time that when you go back here in just uh, two days... Uh, and, of course, they were right there in Jerusalem where they kept it, no doubt. But he wanted them to start the work again. He didn't want them to let up. He didn't want them to give up. But is there a little bit more to it than that? Is it possible that God has a bigger message for you and me uh, to understand from all of this? Let's take ourselves forward to the end of the millennium. Toward the end of the millennium, is there going to be a work of God that needs to be done? Well, after the millennium is going to come the great white throne judgment. And millions, billions perhaps of people will come up to a resurrection, a physical resurrection at that time. Uh, we don't know if God's going to do it all at once or if it'll be in stages, but we know that uh, at, at the very least, many millions of people, if not the whole of all mankind, is going to come up. And at, at that particular time, they're going to come up and they're going to have certain needs. Now, God could just magically create houses. He could, well, we say magically, 
Uh, I don't like, I guess that's a very poor choice of words. So let's try supernaturally. God could do all those things. God could have uh, created an ark for Noah and his family to escape by. He could have raptured the people out of Egypt. But God uses man to do his work uh, from the beginning all the way through to the end. And so it's not unreasonable for us to believe that God would expect that in generation and maybe in generations to be preparing for that special time. Now, is it possible that those people at the end of the millennium, we're speculating here, I'll, I'll give you that, we're speculating, but is it possible that the people at the end of the millennium are going to be turning inward and thinking more of themselves than they're thinking about all this work for building houses for people that they don't even know. You see, we would, we might be excited if we lived at that time because we have relatives, we have friends. As spirit beings, we're going to be chomping at the bit, uh, hardly being able to contain ourselves and waiting for that moment when God is going to resurrect all those people, those millions of individuals, and we're going to be able to talk to our mother and our father in some cases, or perhaps it's our children, or our brothers, or our sisters, or our next-door neighbor, or our best friend in high school, or our associate at work. Our, our neighbors, the people that we love and care for, and they went to their graves, and now a thousand years later, and we're looking forward to that time when we can explain God's plan to them and see that excitement as they begin to understand it without Satan being around. But, but I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. We don't want to go to the meaning of the last great day uh, very much here, except to say that we have that, but these are individuals who will not know anybody in that resurrection. Maybe a name of some famous person they learned in a history book, but these are not going to be their near relatives. Think about it. How much concern do you just naturally have for your relatives a thousand years ago? You don't even know who they were, who they were and don't know what they look like and have no emotional attachment to them. Maybe your grandmother or grandfather or great-grandmother and grandfather you have some attachment to. But people lived almost a thousand years before you don't. Now, you would think that as they understand and are no doubt taught what is about to happen, you would think that they would really be excited. I would think they'd be excited. But, you know, logic sometimes isn't always the answer. Let's take a little bit of logic in our current circumstances. Would you not think that as we are approaching the return of Jesus Christ to this earth, as we see earthquakes, volcanoes, Europe coming together, with fits and starts and all the things that are occurring there and elsewhere in the world, the financial crisis, all the things that are happening in this world as we see God's kingdom approaching, wouldn't you think that we would be on the edge of our seats anxious to see it happen? Well, I hope that you are and I hope that I am. I hope we're not kidding ourselves. But God tells us that the seventh era, the last era of God's church, instead of being excited and ready to do the work of God, is a group of people who are complacent, compromising, 
not all that concerned about it. Self-satisfied, looking inward, taking care of the self. Is it possible that that is going to be a similar attitude at the end of the millennium? Now, please do not draw a wrong conclusion from this. I'm not saying that the seven days represent the seven eras of the church. Uh, please do not uh, try to... We, we could never fit that into that, I don't think, because uh, the circumstances just simply would not be the same. Uh, uh, you know, trying those apostles who say uh, those who say they're apostles are not. Uh, I suppose we come up with some sort of an explanation of that. But then the next era of being in poverty and tribulation, you know, it, it just doesn't fit. But I'm saying that the 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 attitude of mind at the time leading up to Christ's return, which we're living in now, may be a similar frame of mind that the people are in toward the end of the millennium because they've had God and uh, the, the saints working with them all this period of time. And we know that Satan is going to be loosed a little while at the end of the millennium, and he's going to be able to do a work in them. So that means that there must be a frame of mind amongst those people that allows for Satan to do a work and to stir them up to try to fight against God and his kingdom once again. So that's a, a possibility we, we don't know for sure, but let's, let's leave speculation aside and let's ask ourselves, whatever the reason is that this message was given on that seventh day of the Feast of Tabernacles, what can you and I learn from that sermon? And, and the simple answer is basically this, do the work of God. Do the work of God. Because perhaps what the lesson is, is that God always has a work for man to do. That even at the end of the millennium, there's going to be a work that mankind is to do. And it's not all finished there. You know, there are people who say, well, the work finished when Mr. Armstrong died. And nothing could be further from the truth. Because we see many hundreds, perhaps even now thousands of individuals who have come into God's church since Mr. Armstrong died. And there's a work to do now. And even at the end of the millennium, there's going to be a work to do to prepare for the great white throne judgment. You know, Jesus set us the example of doing his Father's work. A very interesting passage in John, the 17th chapter, John 17, and verse 4, it says, I have glorified you. This is Jesus praying to his Father on the night that he is taken into to custody before he's crucified. This is this last great prayer that we have here of Jesus. And he's talking to his Father from his heart in a way that uh, is very poignant for us. And he says here, I have glorified you on the earth. I, Jesus glorified his Father while he was on this earth. Notice, I have finished the work which you have given me to do. You know, I was giving a sermon, and I was reading this passage, and I saw something that I'd never seen before. And I wonder if you see what that is. Here is Jesus 
he is not yet crucified, and he says to his father, I have finished the work you've given me to do. You know, most people turn to the passage that says when he was on the stake that uh, it is finished. And so what they say is that, well, his death, burial, and resurrection, of course, his resurrection was to come after that, but his death and burial, that was what the work of Christ was. But Jesus is saying here, even before he's crucified, he's saying, I have finished the work which you've given me to do. So did Jesus not know that there was more work that needed to be done? No, that's not the answer. We know that he knew what was coming. But there was a portion of the work that he had. There was a certain mission or commission, focus that he had for those three and a half years as well as really all of his life, but especially during that three and a half years. There was a certain focus, a certain mission that he had to do. And it wasn't his focus. It wasn't his mission. It was his father's mission and focus, his father's work that he wanted him to do. And Jesus was faithful in that. Notice back in John, the fourth chapter, John 4 and verse 31. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. They came and said, well, Rabbi, you know, you're going to waste away if you don't eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Verse 33, John 4, 33. Therefore, the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food, that which gives me energy and vitality and causes me to get up in the morning. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And yet we just read, he said, I have finished that which you've given me to do. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. It was God's work, not his own, but God the Father. And then he counsels his disciples there. He says, do not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest. Don't say, now is not the time to build the temple. The same attitude he's warning about. He says, do not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest. He says, behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. They're ready for harvesting. And he who reaps receives wages. So those that work are going to receive wages and gather fruit for eternal life. That both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. And we see that today. Uh, We have to be thankful for those who have gone before us. I have to be thankful for those individuals way back in the 50s and 60s who uh, were praying for young men to come along to be used in the work, who uh, helped me out when I first started attending church. I was about 16 when I got interested on my own and I didn't start attending until I left home. In fact, I left home earlier than I might have otherwise to uh, to be able to attend services. And there were people who took me back and forth to services uh, people who helped me out in, in physical ways, uh, people who helped to pay for my ambassador college education, 
uh, through their tithes and their offerings because our tuition didn't come close to even paying for that. You know, all of those people we have to be thankful uh, to because they brought us along. And, and now it's our turn. We've entered into their labors, and we have to go forward, and we have to continue. And that's going to continue all the way to the end of the millennium. There will be a work that needs to be done. It's not going to be finished now. It is going to be carried on all the way to the end of the millennium, and we might say even beyond that. But uh, God wants his people to work in his work, to carry out his will. In the uh, ninth chapter of John, John 9 and verse 4, Jesus said, I must work the works of him who sent me. While it is day, the night is coming when no one can work. So he said, I must work the works of him who sent me. In other words, it's God's work, and I have to work. I have to do the work that God has given me to do. And so in John 17, verse 4, when he says, I have finished the work which you gave me to do, this is what he's talking about. So specifically, what was that work that Jesus had to do? Well, let's look at the book of Luke in this case, the fourth chapter of Luke. Luke 4. There are numerous things that we could point to, but some very specific things that we could look at. In Luke 4, verse 42, he says, Now when it was day, he departed and went into a deserted place. And the crowd sought him and came to him and tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said to them, Luke 4, verse 43, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also. Because for this purpose, I have been sent. This was a part of the work that he had to do. I must preach the gospel to other cities. You know, we, we can't just be satisfied with our own little, uh, own little area. It, it, it's easy for us as human beings to become only interested in that which affects us directly. My church, my little congregation... Back when Mr. Herbert Armstrong left uh, Oregon and went down to California, there were individuals who wondered about it. They thought, well, what, what, what's this Herbert Armstrong going down there and wanting to be a big shot and be on television and all this type of thing? Uh, not just be on television, but be closer for the radio and, and this type of thing. Because all they could see was their little, nice little group. And, and I remember one time when... Uh, there was a, a group of people that I was pastoring that thought, well, you know, we, we, we've got a nice group here. We don't, we don't need to be a part of some bigger group, some bigger organization. We've got a nice little church here. We've got a couple hundred people. And, and they thought that uh, that was quite sufficient. You know, that's no, no more than just a social club. But when we do the work of God, that expands it far beyond. God didn't call us to be a part of a comfortable little social club. God called us to do work. And sadly, many people at the end of this age have forgotten about the work of God. They love God in one sense. I mean, if they really fully love God, they would do His will. But they love God's commandments. They love the other people that they're with. But to actually 
become a part of something to do a work somehow just doesn't connect. Pardon the expression, but they're not able to connect the dots. And that's sad because there's a certain blindness that has come upon the church at the end of this age. And you and I cannot allow ourselves to have that happen. In uh, the 24th chapter, the last chapter of the book of Luke, we see another part of Jesus' calling and what he was to do. Verse 46, Luke 24, 46. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer. This is after he was resurrected and to rise from the dead the third day. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name by his authority and the name of Jesus Christ to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. So this was something that has to happen, that had to happen, that beginning at Jerusalem, repentance and remission of sins and and the means by which it could happen through the death of Jesus Christ, repentance and the remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And then he said of the apostles, the 11 that were there, and of course Matthias took the place of Judas a little bit later, he says, and you are witnesses to these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry or wait in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. The power to be able to do this job. You are my witnesses. And God chose 12 witnesses. And one, when one disqualified himself, they had to choose another who had seen all the things, who had been with them, who had been around there, and knew the whole story that Matthias could fill in as that 12th witness of his death, his burial, his resurrection, and the message that Jesus brought of the kingdom of God. So these were things that Jesus had to do. He had to prepare individuals to do a work. He had to build his church. He had to start the foundation of his church at that time. And his apostles continued with that job, and they did that faithfully. For example, in the fifth chapter of Acts, Acts 5 and verse 38, says, and now I say to you, this was Gamaliel, and they had taken the apostles into custody, and the apostles said, well, we ought to obey God rather than men, verse 29, and in verse 32, we are as witnesses to these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. And so here in verse 38, Gamaliel took the people aside, the the Sanhedrin there, because they were ready to uh, stone them and and abuse them. And he said, look, look, fellas, let's, let's, uh, let's stop and think this over. He said, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work, this work that they're doing is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. So the apostles were working. They were carrying out God's mission at that time, uh, carrying out the will that Jesus had passed on from the Father to them. In 1 Corinthians, the 16th chapter, 
1 Corinthians 16 and verse 10. Paul, at the end of this book, says, And if Timothy comes, see that he may be with you without fear, for he does the work of the eternal, or the Lord in this case, he does the work of the Lord as I also do. So Timothy's working, and I also am working, and we're doing the Lord's work. And so he says, you know, receive him, uh, help him with that work. In the 15th chapter of the book of Acts, and verse 38, Acts 15, and verse 38, it says, uh, here's the case where Paul and Barnabas are ready to go out and follow up on their, their previous mission, and Barnabas wants to take John called Mark with them. But Paul insisted that they leave him behind. Now, why was Paul that way? Well, Paul insisted, verse 38, that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. You see, when the time got a little bit rough, this young man turned around and went back home. And at this point in time... Paul was so zealous, uh, not necessarily a, a, a positive thing, but God had a positive reason. Perhaps he wanted Paul and Barnabas to split up, and uh, I say split up, not form their own churches, but to go in two different directions, but to do the same work because they were still cooperating in, in other ways, no doubt. In fact, we, we know that later on, Paul said, send uh, Mark to me or John Mark because he is profitable for me. So in one sense, he came to realize that Barnabas was probably right about this young man. But Paul was so intense in doing the work of God that at that point in his life, he he just didn't want anything to do with someone who would turn back from doing God's work. And and perhaps just wasn't quite sensitive enough because he was one way. And you know, sometimes we're that way. We try to project our faith on other people. And we think that because we have this faith that everybody else should have it because we're so zealous to do the work that everybody else should. Now, we need to stir one another up to do the work. I don't, don't get me wrong. But at the same time, we're not all the same place at the same time. But we better be striving to be zealous to do the work of God and putting forth every effort that we can. Uh, we have to realize that what happened with John Mark is they, they got in some pretty tough circumstances there in Asia Minor. And it was a, a situation where he, he just wasn't quite mature enough for that responsibility. But he, you know, became that way later on. So here, Paul is saying that he, he didn't go with them to the work, so let's not take him with us this time. He'll just be a drag on us. And so the two apostles went in different directions. In Philippians, the second chapter, we see a, a man of very different nature, in Philippians 2, in verse 25, there was a man by the name of Epaphroditus. He says, Yet I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, notice fellow worker, and fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need. And 
it says, verse 27, Indeed, he was sick almost unto death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I sent him the more eagerly that when you see him again you may rejoice, and I may be less sorrowful. Verse 29, Philippians 2, 29. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such men in esteem, because for the work of Christ he came close to death. So here was a man that was so zealous that he burned the candle at both ends. That's the sense that we get here. Not partying, as so many people do. Not just working in a, in a, um, a secular job where, um, you know, a person just sacrificing family and everything else to, to get ahead somehow. But in the work of God, and we don't know all the details of what Epaphroditus was doing, but for the work of Christ... He came close to death, not regarding his life, to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. So this was a man who perhaps overdid it, and we need to be careful about that no matter who we are because we are physical, and we can't uh, just you know sacrifice the body and expect that God is just going to rescue us every time or give us uh, supernatural uh, physical uh, prowess uh, frivolously. Now, we, we know that he does lengthen our lives. He does strengthen us. He heals us. He uh, sometimes give us a, gives us the ability to go above and beyond in ways that we might not ourselves, but uh, we can't do it in the wrong way or foolishly. So here was an example of someone who really wanted to do the work of, of Christ, as it says here. So we, we might ask ourselves the question, uh, how much do we want to do the work of God? And you know, if Christ is in you, then you are going to want to do His work. He is going to want to do His Father's will as it has been delegated to Him to do it. If He does, if Christ lives in you and if He lives in me, He will also be doing a work through you, not just for you. You see, many people think that they've been called for salvation. Now, Obviously, everyone here who is hearing my voice at this time definitely wants salvation. I want salvation. I want to be in the kingdom of God. But is that the primary reason why God called me and why he called you at this particular time? Is it to gain salvation only? Well, consider this. God is not calling everyone now. John 6:44. No man can come to me except the Father in heaven draw him and I'll raise him up to the last day. So no man can come to Christ except the Father draws him. Matthew 13, beginning in verse 10, the disciples came to Jesus and they said, "Well, why why do you speak to them in parables?" And his answer was to hide the meaning because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And that's why he spoke to them in parables, to hide the meaning from them. It was only given to those who were being called. Now, if that's the case, I want you to think about this. If God is not calling everyone, why is he calling anyone? Let me repeat that, because... 
it's a little tricky, you might say, in the wording of it, but if God is not calling everyone today, why is God calling anyone today? And why is God calling you and calling me? What is the purpose for it? Why did God call Noah? Why did he call Abraham? Why did he call Moses or the other prophets? And if you think about it, every one of them had a work that needed to be done. And they were called to do a work. And you and I have been called to do a work. It doesn't mean that we won't be saved uh, if, we, uh, if we do God's work. In fact, it's more likely that we're not going to be saved if we don't fulfill the very purpose for our calling. God has called you and he's called me to do a work. And so when we look at the end of the millennium, we see that there's a message for the people even at the end. Do the work of God. And there will be that work that I spoke of earlier that needs to be done. And this was the, the message that Haggai gave on the 21st day of the seventh month, about 520 B.C., the seventh day of the Feast of Tabernacles. So there is a work to be done at the end of this age. In Matthew 24 and verse 14, remember it says, In this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world for a witness unto all the nations. That word, the, all the nations, not just all nations in a general sense, all the nations. Very specifically, it's going to go into all the world, and then the end will come. So we know that some place on this earth, some group of people on this earth are going to be responsible to preach the gospel to all the world, to all the nations before the end comes. We know that the message of Ezekiel, the warning message, the watchman's message of the 33rd chapter of Ezekiel, uh, Ezekiel was never able to take that to the house of Israel because they were already in captivity. And so that was left for a later group of people to take to the end time Israelites. You know, it says, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness. And that's a very different message. It's easy for us to get caught up in thinking, well, the message of Jesus has been taken into all the world. And if we're not careful, we can allow ourselves to kind of drift into, well, the whole world's heard about, about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. But that's not the gospel. I mean, it's a part of the gospel. But we have to remember that Jesus preached the gospel long before he even told them about his death, burial, and resurrection. Now, he did tell them about that. And without his death, burial, and resurrection, there's no way to get into the kingdom. There's no way to have our past sins forgiven us. Uh, there's no king of the kingdom if he wasn't resurrected. So that's a part of it. But that's not the whole of the gospel. The gospel that Jesus preached primarily was the good news of the kingdom of God. Now we have a booklet, Do You Believe the True Gospel? And maybe it's a good time to reread that, to go back and review it, to see that that is the gospel that is going to be preached in all the world. It's not just a, a message about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. That's part of it, but that is not the totality of that message. And if we do not preach the kingdom of God to this world, 
then we're not doing that work. And that's something that has to be done. And how many people understand what that message is? It's precious few on this earth. And among those that understand that, too many are self-satisfied in their nice little group uh, sitting there, uh, you know, uh, comfortable with with, uh, their little group and, and happy, but not actively working together to preach that gospel. We read in Revelation, the third chapter, that at the end of the age, there are going to be two very different groups of people. In Revelation 3, verse 7, it says, To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David. And if you compare where this is quoted from, the 22nd chapter of Isaiah, it's talking about government. It's not talking about the identity of Israel. David knew who Israel was. But when you go to the original quote, it's talking about government here. The key being laid on the shoulder. Uh, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. It's talking about an open door for preaching the gospel. Now, the fact that it is mentioned there indicates that this group of people would have an open door uh, that perhaps had never been seen before. A special opening of a door or doors. And Mr. Herbert Armstrong came along at the infancy of radio and then television and the printing press and the ability to uh, mass uh, produce magazines and the message and send it out in a way that the world had never been able to do before. Yes, there was printing, but not the kind of printing that put 8 million magazines every month out. And now we have the Internet. And we've got, you know iPods and i this and i that and everything else and uh, Twitter and and uh, Facebook and all these other means and ways of getting out the gospel and uh, through an organized effort I mean people can work by themselves but in an organized effort we can do a great work and so this is a group of people that God is going to protect from the end of the age because they are doing the work of God and yet when we get to the angel of the church of Laodicea in verse fourteen. He says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. But because you're lukewarm, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich and increased with goods, wealthy. I need of nothing. I'm just self-satisfied. And he says, you don't know how wretched and miserable, poor, blind, and naked you are. And he's saying this to God's people. God's people who have his spirit, but is not working uh, as strongly as it could be in their lives. I'd like to read a little bit here from the book by uh, the book, the seventh of uh, the letters to the seven churches by Professor William Ramsey. And it's interesting that this book was written in 1906, long before Mr. Armstrong came along, long before uh, this day and age. Over a hundred years ago, this was written. And in this book, William Ramsey, in some 400-odd pages there, uh, contrasts the city that the letter was written to and the church and its mission. And so we're going to just look at Philadelphia and Laodicea. And here on pages 391 and 392, uh, it says, Philadelphia was founded more for consolidating and regulating, educating, the central regions subject to the Pergamenian kings. 
Uh, here's the hallmarks of uh, the city of Philadelphia. It was a missionary city from the beginning, founded to promote a certain unity of spirit, a unity of spirit, notice, customs and loyalty within the realm, the apostle of Hellenism or the Greek culture in an oriental land. It was a successful teacher. So the city of Philadelphia carried the Greek culture to the Phrygian lands. It was unified. It worked together as it was and spread those customs. Now, of the church itself on pages 405 and 406, it says, Philadelphia, therefore, was the keeper of the gateway to the plateau. But the door had now been permanently opened before the church. And the work of Philadelphia had been to go forth through the door and carry the gospel to the cities of the Phrygian lands. It is not stated explicitly that Philadelphia used the opportunity that had been given it, but that it clearly implied, it, that is clearly implied in the context. The door had been opened for the Philadelphian church by him who does nothing in vain. He did this because the opportunity would be used. He opened up the door to this group of people because they would use that opportunity. It would be wrong, he says a little bit later, to infer that Philadelphia alone among the seven cities had a door before it. Each of the seven cities stood at the door of a district. In truth, every church, every one of the seven churches in Revelation had its own opportunity. And all the seven churches had specially favorable opportunities open to them by geographical situation and convenience of communication. Philadelphia must have been preeminent among the seven cities as the missionary city. So it did things that, that no other church was able to do. Now let's look at, let's contrast that with Laodicea, page 415. Planted on the better of the two entrances from the west to the Phrygian land. Laodicea might have been expected to be, like Philadelphia, which commanded the other entrance to the Phrygian lands. A missionary city charged at first with the task of spreading Greek civilization and speech in barbarian Phrygia, and afterwards undertaking the duty of spreading Christianity to that country. It, Laodicea had, however, made little progress in Hellenizing Phrygia or spreading the Greek culture to Phrygia. Why it was that Laodicea had failed and Philadelphia had succeeded in diffusing the Greek tongue in the districts immediately around, we have no means of judging. But such was the case. Why one was successful and the other was not, we don't know. But we know that that was the case. On page 422, speaking of not just the city, but now the church itself, it says there is no city whose spirit and nature are more difficult to describe than Laodicea. There are no extremes and hardly any very strongly marked features. But in this, even balance lies its peculiar character. Those were the qualities that contributed to make it essentially the successful trading city, the city of bankers and finance, which could adapt itself to the needs and wishes of others, ever pliable and accommodating full of the spirit of compromise. In fact, William Ramsey names Philadelphia the missionary city and Laodicea 
the city of compromise. Very interesting. Continuing on page 424 through 426, excerpts from it. The Laodicean church is neither one thing nor another. It is given to compromise. It cannot thoroughly reject the temptations and allurements of the world, and therefore it shall be rejected absolutely and and inexorably by him whose faithfulness and truth reject all half-heartedness and compromise. The one respect in which it stands forth preeminent is that it is the adaptable city, able to suit itself to the needs of others, because it has no strongly pronounced character of its own. Laodicea must appear to him, to John, undecided, devoid of initiative, pliable, irresolute, and unsatisfactory. Skipping down a little bit, it says, In the tendency of the Laodiceans toward a policy of compromise, John would probably see a tendency towards toleration and allowance, which indicated a certain sound, practical sense, we might call it common sense, and showed that the various constituents of the population of Laodicea were well mixed and evenly balanced. The very characteristics which made Laodicea a well-ordered, energetic, and pushing center of trade, so it wasn't as though there was no energy behind it, it was just how it was directed, seemed to him, to John, to evince a coldness of nature that was fatal to the highest side of human character, the spirit of self-sacrifice and enthusiasm. You see, that was what was lacking, the spirit of self-sacrifice and enthusiasm. Now, a little bit later, uh, he makes this very interesting comment that the area surrounding Laodicea, the district of Laodicea, not just the city, but in the district, there was an incident that occurred that uh, William Ramsey found uh, quite interesting. Uh, It says here that... um, A couple different individuals have recorded this. In this city, people and magistrates alike were Christian in the early years of the 4th century. During the last great persecution, 303 to 313, the population, when threatened, collected at the church, which was in itself a defiance of the imperial orders. They were surrounded by a ring of soldiers, and the usual alternative was offered, compliance or death. In ordinary circumstances, doubtless some or even many of them would have lacked the boldness to choose death. But it lies in human nature that the general spirit of a crowd exercises a powerful influence on the individuals who compose it. And even those who, taken singly, might have compromised with their conscience and shrunk from a terrible death accepted it when inspired with the courage of the whole body. The entire people was burned with the church and they died calling upon the God over all. You know, those are kind of chilling words because they so much describe what we may see in the future. We know that Laodicea will go into the tribulation. And maybe because people are more interested in following their friends and neighbors or loved ones than doing the work of God at the right time, that may be their final lot. But, you know, they are God's people. And they will be a true witness at the right time. And there has to be a group of people like that. And uh, God willing, we'll all be Philadelphians, even though 
Uh, we could have any one of those uh, attitudes of the church in the organization we belong to and other organizations as well, but uh, God willing, we'll be Philadelphians because that's not a very pleasant thing to think about. Let's uh, let's finish up, though, a little bit here. We're about finished. and um, You know, there are many ways that we can do the work of God. And, and certainly... We have people who come into the office and the Canadian work and they volunteer their time to stuff booklets. And that's a wonderful way to help out in doing God's work. And some drive a good little distance and sacrifice their time and their energy. And at first it's real exciting, but, you know, it gets boring after a while stuffing the same booklets and, you know, a thousand booklets every week. Uh, several people coming in and doing that. But they do it faithfully. And that's doing the work of God. Some some of the ladies bring food to services so that afterward there can be warm fellowship among all the members. You know, that's doing the work of God because that's feeding the flock as well, feeding in more than one way. Uh, there are those individuals who come in and set up and take down the hall. You know, that's doing the work of God. It's preparing for the Sabbath day. Fellowshipping with new people, going out of one's way, putting one's own shyness aside to go and help other people. That's doing the work of God. Uh, calling, sending cards to and visiting the sick. That's doing God's work. Faithfully sending in your tithes and giving generous offerings. That's doing the work of God. And praying for this work. That's doing the work of God. And, you know, I know that there are those who are cynical out there who say, oh, yeah, just pray and pay. Well, you know, those people who are cynical in that way have no idea what spirit they're of. Because it's a great honor for every one of us to give offerings, to pay our tithes, to do those things, and to get down on our knees and cry out to our Creator to do what we personally cannot do to move the work forward. And to work in a unified effort, as the city of Philadelphia was unified. And, and to work together to do the work. Showing hospitality by inviting people into your home after services for a, a meal, whether it be a potluck meal or just a meal. Whether it be beans and cornbread or whatever it is locally that you might have. Uh, that's all a part of doing the work. But working together... Supporting Mr. Meredith, Mr. Ames, the other presenters on the program, Mr. Smith, Mr. King. You know, supporting that in our prayers and in our ties and everything, that is doing the work of God as well. We're told that God is going to reward us according to our works, Revelation 22 and verse 12. And we're told in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. It's not going to be in vain. We are going to reap wages for eternal life. In Romans, the ninth chapter, verse 28, I'll just quote this. It says, For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the eternal will make a short work upon the earth. We look back, and it was a very short work in retrospect. So, as it says in Colossians 1 and verse 10, Let us walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being faithful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge 
of God.